Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. Well, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that we are having some staff, kind of staff transition over the course of the summer, and that is actually, we're going to talk about uh, a little bit today. So up here now is the Wilhite family. So Josh, yes, thank you, yes. So Josh and Gwen and Maggie and Anna and Hope right here. We've got some of our elders, Brian and Jonathan here and Grant's over here, and we have the amazing privilege today. This is you with us, basically sending them to their next assignment. And so Josh Wilhite, who's been our men's director around here for the last three years, they've been around since 2015 or 16, um, is going to Fort Wayne, Indiana, to be the lead pastor at Emmanuel Community Church. And so you're going to get to hear from him today in his message, just the journey uh, that he has been on. But we want to we want to take a little time and we want to celebrate the Wilhite family and what they've done around here. So some of you may know if you're involved in children's ministry, Gwen here has been on the always the wife always gets more. That's for sure. So Gwen's been on our children's directional team, and she's also been on our part-time kids team staff and has done an amazing job. All three of the girls here have served in amazing ways, student ministry, children's ministry. And so here's the thing. This is a great thing that this family came here. Man, they got trained, they healed up, and now God is ready to move them uh, to their next assignment. It's also a brutally hard thing. These are my friends, right? And I'm so proud of what God has done in their life and how they've yielded to his, his spirit here. But uh, man, we, we are going to miss them like crazy. So let me just celebrate Josh for a second. And so th- they're not going to ask, but if in the first Sunday in August... If Emmanuel will say, hey, Kyle, why don't you come introduce Josh to the body here at Emmanuel? Here's the three things I would say that I want you to know. Number one, that this is a changed man. From the man that showed up at our place in 2015 to the man that is heading to Fort Wayne, Indiana, he is different. And he is changed in the transformation in his life And the life of his family speaks louder than any message that he's ever going to give in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I just want you to know that. Y'all have been a part of that. Second thing that I would tell them is this man is an incredible husband and he's an incredible dad. And they are an incredible family. And one of the things that's hard for me, we lose one of those families that we would say, hey, follow the Wilhites as they follow Christ. That hurts. Right, those fam- we need those families in our body. The third thing I would tell that community in Fort Wayne is that this man has a deep love for God's word, a deep love for communicating God's word, which you're going to be blessed by later today, and applying that to people's lives. So I would just tell you, I think there was a couple here first hour from that church in Fort Wayne, and I'm like, you're going to get so blessed. It's just going to be so great. So here's what we want to do. Okay, as a body at City Bridge that's been a part of their journey for the last six or seven years, uh, we want to do what it says in Acts 13, 1 through 3. It just says that the church at Antioch was worse. While they were worshiping, it says, and fasting, that they laid their hands and they sent Paul and Barnabas on a mission trip. And so that's what we're going to do right now. Grant's going to pray for them. If you're comfortable kind of raising your hands toward them, we just want to send them to be God's messengers uh, to a different part of our country. So. Uh, Father, just... uh, so grateful, first of all, for your faithfulness in this family's life. It's just been a story about you. And, uh, Father, just so excited in anticipation for what you're going to do through them and in them at, in Fort Wayne. 
Um, Father, I do pray um, that they would hear your voice, follow your voice, and we commend them to you, and we pray that you would work through them so that you accomplish what you will and that it would bear fruit all over Fort Wayne and beyond. And so, Father, we're so grateful for this time that you've given us with these guys and how they've affected, led, and been a part of how you've changed us, my family included. And so, Father, I just pray that you would go with them, help them, bless them, and be with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, City Bridge, thank you. Thanks a ton. I, uh, given this chance to share from God's Word, uh, kind of one last time with y'all, and um, I want you to hear about Him uh, more than me, but I, I have this kind of interesting tension of wanting to tell you what I'm learning in God's Word so that you can see Him, but I'm going to use our story, um, really in our time in Texas, to try to weave those things together to be a benefit to you so that you can know the Jesus that I'm coming to know more and more and more. Um, I just don't want to cloud it and somehow make it about me and, and the Will Heights. So let's be clear on that up front, okay? All right? But I'm going to try to, try to do these two things together this morning and, and invite you in a journey. Uh, because really, if you're, if you're talking about my last couple months, uh, last couple months for Gwen and me, uh, and for our family, it's been a time of kind of increasing tension and chaos because we're looking at the whole idea of uprooting our entire lives. Again, from, in this case, the healthiest local church experience we've ever had, the healthiest set of community relationships we ever had. This place kind of broke my paradigm of the limits of what God is willing to do in a local church. Uh, when we came here to Watermark and what became City Bridge, it, it just has continually uh, blown my mind what God is willing and able to do in relationships. And so the idea of uprooting and going somewhere else, is, it took us a long time to get to that kind of clarity, uh, for Gwen and me to get to that kind of clarity. And it kind of all came by God's grace and his kindness. He didn't leave it ambiguous because I think a move with an ambiguous call would have been hard, but he made it really, really clear to us in a way that's really helped us. Uh, but this journey has felt still despite that you know, hard. I mean, the logistics of a move, the, the realities of pulling away from fundamental relationships, uh, what that does to uh, each of us as an individuals and then as a family, that's been challenging. And so it's taken my, my mind back to a key image that uh, we carried in our transition here to Dallas from Detroit, Michigan, when we moved here at the end of 2015. Um, that was a very similar setup, only we didn't, you know, we, we came in with a lot less clarity, a lot less certainty, and we decided to kind of get in the boat with Jesus in a transition that uh, exposed a lot in our lives. And at the end of that transition, Gwen bought me a print of a painting that God had kind of put in my mind, like a, a, an image, a Rembrandt painting that God had, had put in my mind and kind of provided for me as a symbol, as, a, as sort of a totem to focus on through that whole transition to, to Dallas from Detroit. And so I wanted to share it with you. This is what you would see if you came in our living room. Not everybody hangs Rembrandts in their living room. Don't worry, this one's not nearly as expensive as the real thing. Um, but this is a picture by Rembrandt called Jesus in the Storm on the Lake of Galilee. And if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, you know that's no lake. It's a huge lake. Um, and this is, I think, Rembrandt's attempt to give a good rendering of the text that we're going to be in today and the text that God kind of used to minister to my heart in our transition to Dallas and that he's brought me back to in our transition to Fort Wayne from Dallas. And so um, you see here, you've got the storm, you've got the boat, you've got Jesus in the back of the boat and, and sort of this visceral image for me that I latched onto really strongly. Because when it came, down, when it came time to make the decision to move to Dallas from Detroit, uh, knowing nobody here, having no infrastructure, nothing. It was a crazy, crazy leap. I felt like I was stepping into a small boat in a giant storm, and that picture resonated. And I think that was true on many levels for all of us as Will Heights and for us as a family. Because so, here's what you got to understand. It wasn't just a move. I know a lot of us have moved, and you know maybe you've had a crazier move than this. But in Detroit, uh, when we finally got the clarity that we were going to try this, everything suddenly started coming really fast. Uh, we listed our house and sold it in, all in one weekend. 
Um, and we, and we in, in August of that year, and we scheduled movers and had all of that arranged without any prospect of a job and any concept of how we were going to find a home or where to even look in the entire DFW Metroplex. And people thought it was funny to send me those images of how big DFW is, like from space. And I'm like, I don't even know. You know, you know how we landed in Plano was we were like, I heard there were good schools, so let's go here. Uh, like, that's about it, you know? I looked at over 30 real estate properties to rent in like a day and a half. I'm not exaggerating. And the very last one was the one we ended up deciding we wanted, but we couldn't afford it because uh, I didn't have a job. So we had to lock in a lease by paying cash up front, six months cash up front out of the equity of the house, not knowing whether we would have a job that could pay those bills. Like, that is crazy. Don't, I don't recommend this. Um, <laughs> But we had this kind of clear sense, like this is, it was now or never, it was something or nothing. And, and so we decided to go for it. We didn't end up signing a lease until three months after we sold our house, and that was in November. Didn't land a job until a few weeks after that, and the job didn't quite pay enough. Uh, we were going to be in and out. We were going to Dallas Theological Seminary. We, our thought was we'd be in and out in three years, and hopefully we could survive it before we got stable. Um, and it was crazy. I mean, I don't know if you've had the experience of uprooting not just your own life, but being responsible for uprooting your family's life. Um, I have permission to share, and it's even more intense because Maggie's right here in the front row with me. But my oldest daughter, Maggie, like I had my experience of tension, but Maggie had her own. See, she had a voice, but she had no vote. And so she's, she was in fifth grade. We were pulling her out of school in the middle of her fifth grade year, putting her in a brand new elementary school in a brand new city in a brand new state she had no time for, no interest in. So she was pretty anti-Texas. Would that be a safe? That'd be a safe thing to say. say pretty anti-Texas. And as a firstborn and with her personality type, uh, she didn't have a vote, but she sure used that voice. Uh, she made sure that we knew that this was not okay. This was not great. She was civil. She was obedient, but she was not happy. And in retrospect, what I couldn't have seen and didn't see was quite how deep that went. I knew it went deep, but man, it was one of those kind of earth-shattering, level 10, life-defining pains and storms for her, too in her own journey. And so we were in a massive storm together as a family. We all felt, like I said, like we were in a small boat in a huge storm. And my question to you is, can you relate? Can I, can I ask any of you in the room who are willing to be authentic with us and with me and say, hey, is anyone in the room currently experiencing a pretty massive storm of chaos in their life. Anybody willing to just... This is called authenticity. We do this here at City Bridge, and I love it because there's no shame in that. Maybe anybody have someone that they love who's going through a massive storm of chaos in their life, okay? So is it safe to say this is a relevant conversation for all of us, not just the Wilhites? What, what do we do when we are impacted so heavily by our circumstances, so much upheaval, so much pain, so much change, so much potential loss maybe, that, that it just is gripping? What do we do when our anxiety goes up, our heart rate goes up? I, I mean, I'm, I, is it just me in those moments of the storm? I see that hand. I see that, right? Like, when the storm hits, my heart rate goes up, my I get tense, I get tense in my chest, I get tense in my neck, and I can get gross feelings in my stomach. Where does it sit for you? Right? right now, even just thinking about that. Or maybe you can think about past storms and you're concerned about the next one. So what do we do with that? What do we do when we are in the middle of a chaotic storm, when we're in a small boat in a big storm? How do we lean into that? Well, what the text is telling, what the text told me in Michigan that I could only hear so much of, and what it's telling me again now here in Dallas as I look ahead to Indiana, and what it's telling you in the room is something really, really stark. What the text is telling you and me is that you can absolutely have calm in the midst of your chaos. You and I can have calm in the midst of our chaos. Stop for a second and recognize a lot of you had a filter just go up and say, okay, church words, but I'm not really with you, right? Like, yeah, that's true. But inside you're like, prove it, buddy, right? Or, you know what I'm saying? Anybody willing to say you had a bit of that response just now? Uh-huh, I would. Because it's an easy thing for a preacher to say from the front, calm in the midst of chaos, sounds cool. But listen, if God's word is true, 
And if he's real and if he's alive in the room, and I believe it is, and I'm experiencing it more and more, listen, you've got to hear this. You can have calm in the midst of chaos. That's what God's word is going to tell us today. So I'm going to encourage you to open your heart, push past that filter, and listen to God's word as we open it to Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, because the scripture is going to teach us that we can have calm in the midst of chaos. Now, while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background on the text. Can't help it. Seminary nerd. It's just the way I am. Okay. And I think it'll be helpful for you. So what's happening in this text as you turn in there is Jesus is right at near the beginning of his ministry. He just did, uh, uh, he, he gave the Sermon on the Mount. He was this kind of this big, huge, here I am. I'm a big, you know, I've got a lot to say and everybody's stunned by Jesus. This is his first big presentation of himself. And the crowds are clamoring around him. Everybody wants a piece of him. Everybody's interested in him for all their reasons. But what he does is right after that, after doing some healings and some other incredible things, is he carves off this small group of his disciples and he invites them into a place where he's not going to teach them with his words. He's going to teach them with the space he gives them. He's going to teach them with their experience and their context. And this is where Jesus does so much of his intense teaching is not from words up front, but from the day-to-day grind of life. And so he's going to invite them into a boat to go with him across the Sea of Galilee to another region to do more ministry. And if you're like me and I'm like them and we are, we're thinking, oh, cool, we're just getting to a boat with Jesus, right? You just wake up one morning and think it's just a regular day with Jesus, you know, and, and these guys, they make the decision to get in the boat. And what, what you need to understand about the text too is that, that what's going on here is, Jesus, is Matthew, the writer, is making it really clear that this is a conversation that's about more than weather. I don't have time to get into all the particulars of why I'm saying this, but, but what he's doing is here is he's singling out the story to be a conversation about what it means to be a real disciple of Jesus. Anybody can choose to get in the boat. All right, that's a hard enough decision to get in the boat with Jesus. But let me tell you, to stay in the boat, to persevere in the boat, and to to be with Jesus in the boat is a whole other level of conversation when we're talking about discipleship. And so these guys choose to get in the boat with Jesus. And this is what the text says in verses 23 to 27. It says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, men of little faith? And then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds in the sea, obey him. And if you're like me, when you first read this, you might compare it to the Luke account, right? Or to the Mark account and say, they're all basically the same, the same thing. Jesus is God because he can calm the sea. And I'm saying, you're not, you're right. You're not wrong. But man, there is a lot more happening in this text. This isn't about being stunned by Jesus's bigness. This is actually about zooming into what it means to walk with him and be his disciple, and to know and be close to God. Let me show you a couple things, more things in the text. I have a slide here that shows you that this text, I think, is designed in a very peculiar way that's normal to ancient texts called a chiasm. And the way it works is you have these outer statements, the beginning and the end, that sort of match, and then the two inside kind of match, and those match, and they sandwich a core central idea that the the author really wants to emphasize and show you that's often a turning point or a key point of emphasis. It's called a chiasm. That's your extra special nerd nugget for the day. You can write that down and throw that word around and impress your friends. Okay, but functionally, why does this matter, right? Well, look at the progression the disciples go through between verses 23 and then 25 and then 27. His disciples just simply followed him into the boat. They made the decision to be with Jesus, right? And all of a sudden, one verse later, verse 25, they are losing their ever-loving minds in absolute terror and fear, shaking him awake saying, save us, we're dying. The word perishing means literally to be destroyed, that we're being destroyed. And then just one verse later, they're quietly stunned, saying, what kind of man have we gotten ourselves connected to? Who is this? I mean, that's a massive transition in just a couple short verses. And so that structure is pointing out that, hey, the key moment here is when they lose their minds in the middle. But it also emphasizes and shows you that there's there's some meat on either side of that moment in the text that explain what's going on here. 
in verse 24 and 26. They simply got in the boat, and immediately there are two huge problems in their minds. Two huge problems. Look at verse 24. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. A storm just happened. All right? And so the boat was being covered with waves. Now, these are like hardened, salty sailors. These guys are fishermen. They've seen some things. If you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, you know it's huge. You know it's pretty typical there for for wind, the way the geology works, to kick up some big storms. I guarantee you they've seen big storms, but I'm not sure they've ever seen anything quite this big because even these guys are white in the face, terrified. Okay, so problem number one, if you're a disciple, is your, it says the boat is being covered with waves. And that's insanity. And they're out in the middle of this huge body of water. Problem number one, pretty stark, pretty clear, pretty obvious. Problem number two, Jesus was asleep. First off, what's wrong with this guy that he can sleep through that? Well, one, I think it says how, how exhausted he was in pouring himself out in ministry up to this point. But two, I think it's because he is modeling for them something critical and modeling for you something critical in the middle of that storm. But if you're a disciple, you're looking at problem number one, I've got a massive storm that's going to destroy me. And problem number two, the only one who can save me is completely checked out. Have you ever been there with God? I mean, can you relate? You see what the author's doing here? Thank you. I see that hand. Right? And I mean, like, on one level, it's hilarious, really, when you think about it. You'd think we'd get it by now. But on another level, man, when you're in it and you're talking about something, and I mean this because I've experienced it like miscarriage, or your marriage falling apart, or the loss of a dear loved companion, or job stress, or God says, uproot your entire family from the healthiest place you've ever been and go on this mission with a whole new group of people that's really exciting and overwhelming and makes you feel very insecure. I don't know, just for instance, you know. (laughs) And then, like, sure, I'll get in that boat. Yeah, I'll accept that it's happening, but why don't I feel you moving and saving and making this easier, God? Why don't I necessarily feel your presence the way I would expect to feel it? Why did you let the wheel bearing go out on my van just three weeks before we're driving a thousand miles pulling a trailer? That just seems inappropriate and unnecessary. Right? I mean, waves crashing over the boat, sure, but you're going to kick me in the shin while I'm bailing water? I don't understand. Right? So can you relate? Can you feel that? Problem number one, we're dying. Problem number two, God has checked out. That's how the text sets up. So, so if you're me, you know, or the disciples, 20, verse 25 makes total sense. Wake up! We're dying! Save us! Right now, to their credit and to yours and to mine, you know, they're going exactly where they need to go. I mean, do you think they turned to Jesus for his sailing skills? The dude grew up as a carpenter. Right? They know this, there's no, he's not turning to him to like, what do they think he's going to do, bail faster? No, they're turning to him clearly because they think he can save them. So that, kudos, like congrats. And you'd think maybe that's the lesson, turn to Jesus for saving and to make it safe and to calm the water. Which is what makes his two rebukes so stark over against the two problems in the text. Because his first rebuke does not solve their circumstance. See, what I would have expected is I shake Jesus awake. He goes, what? Oh, oh, come. Okay. Now let's talk about how awesome and how big I am and how next time just pray hard and I'll save you. Right? That's what I might've expected from the text, but that's not at all what he does. He wakes up, looks around. I mean, there's waves crashing. Like he's, he's soaked. They're soaked. And he's just like, not in any rush. I mean, he didn't stop the storm before he says this. He just looks him in the eye and he says simply, why are you so scared, little faith ones? It's one word, by the way, little faith one in the original language. Like like baby faiths is maybe another way of saying it if you're making up an English word. Why are you so scared? He didn't say it. I mean, the boat's churning right? There's water swishing between him and them. And it's like, if you had an EKG machine hooked to him and to them, his would just be like, boop, 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 
and theirs would be like, boop, 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 emergency times 12, right? Cardiac arrest. Like, that's what the text is doing, is he's just putting these completely opposite people and attitudes and mindsets next to each other, and Jesus, across their freaking out, just speaks this question, why are you afraid? And that is the question that I want you to ask yourself. That is the question I'm asking myself. When my wheel bearing goes out and I'm ready to flip a table with frustration, that never happens. <clears throat> he lied. Uh, when, you know, when I think about the prospect of you know, all of the challenges we're facing as a family, back when we moved here from Michigan, all of the difficulties and things that just didn't need to happen, the question was, and the question is, why are you afraid? What are the mechanisms? What are the truths you're believing down in your guts that you don't have words for or you're unwilling to admit that are driving this intense response? What's really going on in here? Not what you want to believe about yourself, not what you want me to think about you, but what this circumstance has squeezed out of you. Why are you afraid. See, the real problem, if you're going to write something down, I'm going to give you three things to write down. Here's the first one. The real problem isn't our storm, or our problem isn't the storm. That's what this text is, and Jesus is confronting you with. Your problem right now is not your chaos, it's not the storm. Your problem is your fear. Our problem isn't the storm, it's the fear. And Jesus proves it by not addressing the storm so that he can address the real problem. See, the real problem wasn't their circumstance, and it's not mine. It wasn't the chaos they were experiencing, and it's not my chaos. That I, that's not my problem either. The real problem is not God's apparent passivity. That's not your actual problem. Their, big, their real problem was their big fear and their little faith. Their tight grip on their perception of safety and wholeness and their loose grip on what it means for God to be in the boat with them. What it means to have Jesus in the boat. A total disconnect there. So I'm back in Michigan paying all that cash up front for rent and I'm trying to negotiate a new lease and I'm, and I'm trying to figure out vehicles and I'm trying to figure out how to move and, and uh, all of our stuff and I'm trying to navigate what it means to have a daughter and family who are struggling in their own struggles and to be a father and a husband. And on the surface, I probably looked halfway decent. But what you got to understand is I coped in a whole lot of ways that are very unhealthy. What that circumstance revealed to me uh, after the fact, more than in the moment, was how prone I am when things get hot and difficult to withdraw, to shut down, to pull back from people and relationships, and to increase my output on logistics. I slept less, I stressed more, I did more, I filled out more job applications, I traveled more to, to Dallas to try to figure out what to do, I, and, and my, my heart rate went up, and I just treated that like normal. That's just what it means to be in stress. And the way that I coped with all of that anxiety and tension and insecurity and all kinds of things, the difficulty of saying goodbye to 10 years of relationships and moving into a whole new set of who knows what, the way I coped with that was not pretty. See, I had had, if you know me and you've heard from me, you know that I had a long burned uh, a relationship with pornography that was really intense early on in my life. But by that point in ministry, it had come down to a low simmer that in all of my broken thinking, I figured was just normally what it meant to be somebody who has or been or is recovering from pornography. And so it was low enough burn that it was not a huge defining element in my mind in what was going on. But you know what happened as the, intention, at the, as the tension and pressure went up? Guess what else went up? My coping mechanisms. And so now you're injecting shame and anxiety and fear and, and self-loathing and all that stuff into an already stressed system. The thing I go turn to cope with is causing more difficult, difficulty than good, right? I'm sure I'm the only one in the room who can relate. What's it for you? I mean, I gotta believe there's a, at least some guys in the room who can relate and some ladies even to the pornography way of, of coping. But what about... I don't know, food? 
What about giving in to panic? Inventing that out? Maggie, I got permission for this, right? Okay, <laughs> just want to double check. Uh, well, one of the things we learned together is that when Maggie gets scared, she tends to get pretty mean, safe, with people she knows and trusts. Uh, and man, that came out a bunch. We didn't have a language for it. So the anxiety level in our house is going up because of how she's coping and how I'm coping. How about you? Is it food? Is it pornography? Is it alcohol? Is it lashing out and justifying it because you're under stress? Is that how you're medicating? Are you doom scrolling? Do you ever hear that? I learned that phrase not too long ago, doom scrolling. It's a thing. It's a new addiction. It's a thing we do. We go to Facebook if you're old or Instagram or Be Real if you're young, I guess. And uh, is Instagram old now? <laughs> kind of. Whatever. And we're just going for the dopamine hits to see more and more and more and more. That podcast, that news podcast, that murder mystery podcast, that whatever thing that I'm doing to just medicate, the, you know, to watch more. And, and we're inputting all kinds of anxiety-creating stuff, fake news, real news. I don't know the difference anymore, but we're absorbing all that as though that's really what we need, more clarity on what's going on in the world. And our temperature goes up. Is this just me? Okay. It doesn't need to be just a Josh therapy session. I want to have a conversation here. See, our problem isn't the storm. The problem is the fear. And the fear has a way of just gripping us and controlling us and, and feeding off of the anxiety and creating more and more and more of it. Can you see why Jesus would allow this chaos to go on? Look him in the eye and address the real issue. And thankfully, the text doesn't, doesn't leave us there with just the problem. See, our problem isn't in the storm, it's, it's the fear. And if you write something else down, write this. Our solution isn't safety, it's connection with Christ. The solution to our fear problem isn't for our circumstances to change. If only God would just fix my wheel bearing or not let it happen in the first place, I'd be fine. If only God would just like levitate me and my family, cause me to completely forget all of this so I don't have to feel the pain of losing it, and then go in and completely immediately attach in Indiana, it'll be great, right? Uh, our problem isn't a change in circumstance. Our, the solution to our problem isn't just a change in circumstance, if only God just would. And the, di the difference between chaos and calm isn't our ability to control our outcomes. Doubling down. If I can just do more, stress more, control more, then I'll be calm. The difference between chaos and calm is our connection with Christ. That's the difference. Because like I said at the beginning, what this text wants to hit you with right in the forehead is you absolutely can be calm in the chaos, despite the chaos, without a change at all in the chaos. You can be calm. See, the disciples, like I said, they knew enough to turn to Jesus, but the challenge that Jesus is confronting them with is, is, is interesting. It's not that they failed to turn to Jesus because they did. It's that they waited so long to do it, and it was the state that their heart was in when they did it, that they allowed themselves to get, they allowed their external chaos to drive and create an internal chaos as though that's normal and okay and healthy. They allowed their insides to match their outsides. And so I don't think there was just one storm on the sea. I think there were two storms on the sea in this text. The waves and the chaos outside, but the storm of their terror and fear and faithlessness on the inside. You see what I'm saying? I think the text is making that point. The storm was bigger than the waves. And Jesus' rebuke first was to them. Why are you so scared? And his second rebuke was then to the waves. And in effect, I think he's rebuking both storms. You follow? And then he calms the waves to prove that this isn't some joker who's just telling him you can rest in your calm. It's the God of the universe. He's the reason we can rest. He's in control. And so... We're in this series looking at Jesus in 4K. We're looking at, we're, we're looking at Jesus and, and getting these this, this incredible images of Jesus, these snapshots, these 4K images of Jesus when we look at him in living color. This week's I'm calling Man versus Wild. 
right? And the image that I want you to get, the clear 4K image of Jesus that I want you to see is him asleep in the boat. That's not an absent God. That's a loving Jesus looking at you and saying, this is what you can have too. If you saw things as they were, that you have God in the boat with you, if you understood the reality that even if God determines that today's the day that you go to the bottom of the sea, you will be better off with him anyway. And while you're here, whether it's your marriage, your health, your loss, your move, whatever it is, Jesus is with you in the boat. So guess what? You can rest. He's not saying pull back. He's not saying don't be involved. He's not saying let go and let God as though you have no responsibility. He's saying take a stinking nap. Literally, metaphorically, take a nap. Rest, relax, loosen your grip. And you do that by focusing on Christ. His example to us of that we can, in our humanity, rest in God's hands, even in the middle of the most destructive chaos. We can find a rest, a peace that passes understanding, is how Paul puts it. We can also focus on the fact that God, Jesus, in his divine reality, is with us in it. And he's doing something. He's discipling my heart through my tension. In his mercy, he's not pulling me out of the only tension that I, out of the tension that I need in order to see what I need to see in order for me to grow and to get close to Jesus and to become like him. It's entirely likely that some of these storms are necessary for me to grow. So what if God is good? What if that absence doesn't scream abandonment, but it screams goodness? A friend of mine gave me this illustration when it comes to what does it mean to connect with Jesus, to think of him like, this is kind of cheesy, but I love it, like a wireless router. You ever, you ever been on your laptop and you're trying to load a, like, I don't know, on the phone, you're trying to load a website, trying to get information you need, and just you get in the spinning wheel of death, right, because it's not enough signal? Well, there's nothing wrong with the computer. There's nothing wrong with the signal that's being sent. You're just not close enough to the router. So just move closer to the source. And is there a chance that the calm in the midst of chaos is really that simple for a believer? That if you're not experiencing calm in the chaos, at least the first thing you should figure is that perhaps this is a question of proximity. Where are you at with Jesus? Do you recognize that God himself is with you in the boat? Are you focused on him and are you drawing your attention to him? Or instead, are you out doing all the things you think you're supposed to do or out coping and trying to feed your own need yourself? Or is it just me? Is it just me? Yep. yep. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. So the challenge here is to recognize our solution isn't safety, it's connection with Christ. Now here's what I want to tell you about how this has played out in my life and why City Bridge has been such a key part of this for both me and Maggie and for our entire family. Because if I can say one thing about how we've carried ourselves through that process, it's that by God's grace, that's what we continue to do. Not perfectly, not always, but we continue to, as individuals and as a family, turn our attention back to Jesus. When we find our heart rate going out of the, uh, you know, out of the stratosphere, when we find ourselves getting tense, eventually what keeps happening by God's grace is that we keep catching ourselves and coming back to what's true. And so for me... By God's grace, early on when this pornography thing was on fire down here and I realized there was so much contradiction in my life, one of the things I learned from City Bridge was that confession is a gift, not a curse. And I began a process that looked scary and it felt like it was adding even more storm, but I began a process of personal healing and growth and get moving past pornography and moving past even a lot of the roots that fed it. And by God's grace, I'm in a completely different space. And Gwen, my wife, watched me go through that. And not long later, she decided to go through Regen. And guess what? She got healthier than she even knew she needed to be. If you're new here, Regeneration Recovery Ministry is something that happens every Tuesday night. And it helps every one of us, any one of us, move past hurts, habits, and hangups by getting honest about our need for God in the storm of our own sin. And then after that, we realized we need to go through re-engage, which is our marriage ministry here at City Bridge, and it's incredible. And we, would, we came in thinking, we're like a level eight. We could use some touch-ups. And oh, we found out real quick, we need a lot more than that. Thank you, re-engage. Where are my re-engage people? Yeah. And so we grew here at City Bridge in our marriage, individually as we walked with Jesus, but in our marriage. And guess what Maggie did? Was it last year? At Watermark, she did re-gen for students, Right? 
she went through that and she got a whole bunch of traction and, and, and movement in her life. And man, if you could watch what's going on in her, she used to hate Texas. Guess where she's going to college? <laughs> Texas Women's University. There's no whooping, but you can clap. Right? She's going to Texas Women's University. She's staying here. This is her home. It's the deepest irony in the Wilhite family history <laughs> for how intensely she hated the idea of being here and how God now has her in a place where as we as a family are deciding what to do, she's going to be the one who stays. You talk about a radical change. And I wish you could get next to her and just hear what the Spirit of God has done in her heart and her life and the woman he's made her into as she turns her attention to Christ. Not perfectly, not always, same with me, but that continual progression of turning her attention back to Christ, even when it's hard. And it's hard right now, isn't it? And so that's what I would ask you. What's your posture? Where are your eyes focused? See, our solution isn't safety. It isn't waiting for God to solve things. It isn't waiting for the storm to go away. It's in whatever state I'm in, I'm going to connect with Christ. So what do we do with all that? Well, it's a simple application, and that's this. We need to find our calm in Christ. We need to make a decision in our head when the heart rate goes up, when the anxiety level gets intense, when the panic sets in, or when the control and the doubling down at work starts, when you start to see the friction in your relationships because of how you're behaving and because of the attitude you're putting off and the radiation that's coming off of you and your anxiety, your fear, and your frustration, when you start to sense that gap between you and God and your time with him becomes less and less and less, that's your indicator. That's your moment that you need to make a decision that if you're going to be calm, you need to recognize the truth that if, there's, if you're ever going to be calm, the only way you're going to be truly calm is to focus on Jesus, is to connect with Christ. So I want to give you some practical ways that I've been learning to do that. On a high level, a couple things. One, Accept that quiet is not a prerequisite for calm. <laughs> Something that's very clear in this text. Quiet was not a prerequisite for Jesus' expectation that someone who had faith and understood who he is and that God is with them could be calm. So step one, you have just got to let go of this demand for, for quiet in order to be calm. Step two, set healthy boundaries. And that's a big term, and what I, there's a lot of boundaries we could talk about, but the one in particular when it comes to anxiety and tension that I would just put in front of you again here is your inputs, the, the anxiety, fear-driving inputs that we are allowing into our lives through the media, doom-scrolling, and if I dare say it, because I know this could be convicting for some, some, some in the room, is those people in your life that you allow to continually feed your fear Fear-driven, fear-focused people, agitators of your anxiety. I'm not saying you're better than them. I'm not saying that they don't deserve ministry too. I'm just saying if you are in a state of faithlessness because of fear, you need to ask yourself, what are the inputs that I'm allowing to feed that fear? The metaphor in the text would be the waves you're staring at, the wind you continue to turn to, the assessment you keep making of how long it is until we sink. You feel what I'm saying? You need to shut those inputs down and turn your attention instead to Christ. And a third high level is take a nap. If there's one concrete obvious, you can't argue with me no matter how good of a theologian you are application here that Jesus demonstrates in 4K quality as man versus wild is that he took a nap. So, so get some sleep if you are burning the candle at both ends, you are breaking down your physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual capacity to experience calm. Put that in the bank. So take a nap. Maybe that's your application today. All the dads and moms are like, yes! Kids, feed yourself. <laughs> right? Obviously, that's in light of reality. But man, when's the last time you got a good eight hours? I know some of you are like, eight hours. I'm like, that's not a matter of pride for you that you don't need eight. That makes you one of the problems, frankly, if I can be so bold, that you keep telling everybody that that's normal because it's not. Take a nap. Take, have some rest. 
The world, God is big enough to run the world without you for your nap. Okay? And one very specific thing I just want to drill in on, and I actually want to have a moment with you on, is this. If you get nothing else as far as what do you do, I would say to do what Jesus clearly did and has demonstrated all through the New Testament and pray the Psalms. You want to you solve your problem of fear and chaos, well, then you turn to Jesus. And the one way you do that very practically, and you can do it quickly in the moment of the intensity, is you can pray a psalm. So I would encourage you to find one. Psalm 131 is my go-to for intense moments. This just happened Thursday. I was completely overwhelmed. I fritz. I had somebody saying something intense to me. I had a text stream of intense logistics going on over here. I had all of this other stuff going on in my life. And I just hit tilts. And my brain just said, forget you, pal, and shut down. And, I, and, and the anxiety went up. And by God's grace, it was one of, the, one of the most clear times I've had in the recent past where it was like I got to practice what I was going to preach in Psalm 131. I grabbed Psalm 131. I opened my Bible. I went in my room. I closed the door. I opened my Bible to Psalm 131. My soul is like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is a weaned child within me. Oh, Israel, hope in God from this day forth and forever. Just centering. If you don't have the words, he'll give you the words. Just grab a psalm. Have a three-verse, in-your-pocket, memorizable psalm that you can just recite and recenter and share with the Lord. You know, Jesus, when he was at his worst experience ever on the cross, do you know what words came out of his mouth? Lama, lama, sabachthani. He's, he's praying a psalm. So that's what he models for us, is pray God's word to him. And he'll meet you there. So really briefly, I just want to pray one verse of Psalm 46 with you myself. I'm just going to open the shirt and show you that it's not a mystery. Maybe you're in here like, I don't know how to pray a psalm. Is that a liturgy? No, just, I just want to do it real quick and just show you what that can look like. So show you how grabbable this is. So I'm going to show you Psalm 46, 1 and 2. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to pray for myself, not you, me, okay? All right. So God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Father, um, I want to just affirm that you are my refuge and strength. You have proved it and I've seen it and I keep slipping off of that clarity but I just want to affirm in this moment that you, you are my only refuge. You are where my calm comes from. And I want to affirm and remember and embrace this idea that you're present, you're with me right now and that when I don't feel you, it's not because you're not there. But God, I'm struggling with verse two. Therefore, we will not fear. I want to affirm and thank you that you've changed me a bunch. I'm having a very different experience this time than I did last time we moved. But God, I have to admit, I'm still scared. Um, I'm scared of that moment that we walk, that we drive away from Maggie and leave her here to experience her first year of college across FaceTime with me. and how that's gonna affect my family and how it's gonna affect me and how it's gonna affect Maggie most of all. And I'm, I'm intimidated thoroughly by stepping into big shoes out in Indiana. So God, I just wanna acknowledge that with you. Would you be with me in a way that only you can? Would you build my faith and disarm my fear and move? In Jesus' name, amen. You can do that. You can do that. It doesn't have to be pretty. You don't have to have words. But to just slow down and focus, that's what it means to connect with Christ. It's not a mystery. It's not a liturgy. It's not a religious thing. It's making a decision to focus on Christ. So I pointed out this painting at the beginning. And I just want to take a few minutes as we close to show you particularly why this painting is so stunning to me and continues to be and why it's back for me with our move to Indiana. Because I, I want to give you a zoomed in picture. I want to show you where Jesus is in the boat. He's right there in the back. 
And the cool thing about Rembrandt, the dude was a genius, not to mention a great painter, but he was also a genius in composition. And so if you cover half the painting, you're going to have a certain experience. See that? That's just chaos. It's everything I feel when my anxiety gets out of control, when I'm confronted with the storm. Look at their eyes. It's everywhere. It's every man for himself, hanging on for dear life, feeling the wind, feeling the waves. Now, look what happens when you flip and cover that side and open the other side. You have a completely different composition. See how much more calm that is? The lighting is different. Now, look at the eyes of everyone there. Where are those eyes focused? Rembrandt is preaching this passage to you and to me from his grave how cool is that? And so he gets Matthew 8. He gets what the text gets and wants you and me to get. Where you focus your eyes determines everything about your calm. You can be calm in Christ. There's one little nugget still left in the painting, though, that I want to show you. Is one of those disciples right smack in the middle. Look at where he's looking. If you can't tell, he's looking directly out of the painting at you and me. And what Rembrandt's doing there is he's putting the, the punctuation at the end of his sermon, just like I'm trying to do, with that guy looking you and looking me in the eyes and saying, which direction are you going to look? Which side of the boat are you going to be on in your storm? You're going to tighten your grip, freak out, lose your mind, cope, medicate. What are you going to do? What are you going to do today? Where you're going to hear Christ's invitation when he looks at you and says, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Just look here. Watch what I can do. He healed the Wilhites here at City Bridge on a whole lot of levels. It took time in our storm. He put us in a space where it's time to get into our next boat, go into our next storm with that much more confidence and faith. What's he going to do? What's he been doing for you? What's he going to do for you as you turn your eyes to Christ? Because he's the calm in your chaos. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at CityBridgeCC. See you next time.